Turn in your Bibles once again to John chapter 7. We uh, started an outline there as we were looking at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and the, I won't read through the entire text again, but it is John chapter 7, verse 11 through 53. And we were talking about how the Jews had de- at this time uh, during the feast were debating five different topics as they discussed Jesus at the feast. We got through a few of these. The first was how they debated his character. They debated his doctrine, and we left off on how they were debating his works. I want to start there, actually, in verse 19 through 24 of John 7. It says as follows, Jesus speaking, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? And that's a, that's a keepeth the law, right? So this is an ongoing thing, an ongoing requirement, an ongoing action of keeping the law. So it's not that they were completely disobedient 100% of the time, but it's the expectation that they would keepeth the law ongoing. The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, Uh, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. Verse 23, If a man on the Sabbath day receive circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And again, here they're debating his works. They've, they've debated everything they could of his character, of his doctrine that he stood for, that he's established. Uh, they're going to yet debate his origin and, and, and so forth. But here it's his works. Now, it's significant because they've, many have followed him because of his works at this point, and some of which have done an, an error. They've not believed, but they've enjoyed or benefited from the works that he's accomplished. Here the debate is the source of the works. They pretended to defend the law by accusing him of working on the Sabbath when he healed the man, but he showed that their desire to kill him was contrary to the very law they claimed to revere. He points out the inconsistency of the people who oppose Christ and reject his word. A man can be circumcised on the Sabbath, but he cannot be healed. He should remain in his broken or sick state. Like many today, they were shallow, judging by appearance and not truth. And I had closed last time with the question, do we want to see people get along or be saved? Because in all likelihood, we can't have both at times. Do we want to see people always agree, always unified, always getting along and keeping peace, peace, oh, that precious peace? Or do we want to see hearts broken unto salvation? Do we want to see lives truly restored? Not restored to the point where they get along and they're like everyone else, but truly restored to a godly state of things in which their salvation, their souls are secure for all eternity. Then they question his origin. Read with me now verse 25 through 31. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he who they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. 
But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him, and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? An interesting thing occurs here, as I had mentioned a little bit last time, John being our writer, uh, usually in the accounts of Jesus' teaching, that's what the writing is, what Jesus teaches. It's not so much a, a back-and-forth play of what the people are saying and how they're responding to it, unless it was the scribes, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees. But here it seems that the disciple is giving us a lot of counterpoints. He's given us a lot of observations of the people at this feast who are witnessing this teaching. And in this portion, Jesus acknowledges their thoughts too. He acknowledges their murmurings as well. They are saying that they don't know him or that they couldn't know him or he couldn't be who he says he is. And he responds in verse 28 as though he's hearing the whole thing. Ye both know me and ye know whence I am and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. Consider, if you will, Verse 27 compared to verse 42. Verse 27 says, Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And John 7:42 says, Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David, and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? Uh, neither of these verses are Jesus speaking, but these are the acknowledgments, acknowledgments of the crowd. And there is not a contradiction between verse 27 and verse 42, though these men, these women, desired for them to be. The Jews knew where the Messiah would be born, but they also knew that his birth would be supernatural. Consider Isaiah 7, verse 14, a very common verse for us Baptists for sure. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold! A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This was written under the Jews. Those who were gathered that day for the feast, they would have known this scripture, or should have known this scripture. In other words, they would not know where he was from. Consider again verse 28, where Jesus says, He cries in the temple as he's teaching. This is our proof that he's teaching. This is our proof that there's a crowd gathered that we've been hearing murmurings from. And during his teaching, he cries out, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. Who sent him? Back in Isaiah 7:14, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. The Lord himself <coughs> sent his son <coughs> to suffer, die, and be buried, and rise again making possible salvation for man. The record states that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, but the Jews would not believe this. They even seemingly accuse Jesus of being born in sin. They accuse him of having a devil. They want to kill him. It shouldn't surprise us too much that they also want to say that he was born in sin. But Mary's condition before she married Joseph would perhaps make people say this. How does one end up being pregnant if they didn't have sexual relations before marriage? Immaculately it would seem, based on exactly what Isaiah 7, 14 proclaimed. John 8, 41, Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Let us rather believe the words of our Savior himself as he affirms that he was sent of the Father. 
If they knew the Father, they would know the Son. What does he tell Nicodemus, who, again, is in this crowd? We'll see him in just a moment. What did he tell Nicodemus back in John 3? I could tell you of spiritual things, and you won't understand them. You don't know them. You don't know the Father. And he's saying here that, uh, that he and his disciples are teaching of, of things from a worldly standpoint with Scripture, proving that Christ is coming. They will not receive it. John 7, again, verse 28 and 29, Jesus doesn't whisper it in the temple. He doesn't just teach it in the temple. He cries out in the temple as he's teaching, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not, but I know him. I know him, he says. For I am from him. We hearken back to his spiritual heritage. We hearken back to that he is speaking of things of the Spirit, and they cannot comprehend. He's illustrating for us and for Nicodemus that what he said back in John 3 is still the condition of fallen man. They prefer darkness rather than light. Now consider his warning. We'll look at verses 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. The little while that Christ spoke of lasted about six months. We might want to note that in our, in our ongoing study. In about six months, he'll return to he who sent him. The same he he's been talking about all along, God the Father. His response to them is not at all what he responds to Thomas later when Thomas says, how will we follow and we don't know the way? Jesus says, you know me. That's his response to the disciple. That's his response to the church, his response to the born-again believer. You don't know the way specifically because you weren't meant to go by yourself. You're meant to yoke up with me. My burden is light. You're meant to come with me and you know me and of whom sent me and I will lead the way. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is important that people seek the Lord. I want to point back to Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah writes, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, our own brethren, if I didn't announce that that was Scripture, would immediately contend that, well, man can't just find him. He's got to reveal himself. And the wicked can't forsake their way. They're totally depraved. And the unrighteous man cannot forsake his unrighteous thoughts because he can only imagine evil continually. And a man can't return unto the Lord unless he be made able. All of these things are true. But sadly, we, we, we learn doctrine and then we equip ourselves with doctrine to try and dissect what God has never meant to be separated. 
Man is to seek the Lord. Some won't. All men will one day repent, but not all are going to believe unto salvation. What Isaiah is writing here is not heresy. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Everything he says after that, you won't be able to do unless God has equipped you to do it. But it doesn't make this an Arminian statement. We should be striving to do this. I am born again, have been since I was 15, and I still have to seek the Lord. I still have to try and find him while he can be found. Why? Has he forsaken me? No, I've forsaken him. I have to seek after him because I've departed over and over and over and over again. So what's this mean for the lost, though, preacher? The lost who don't know him, how can they ever find him? They may not, but they should seek him. And it's our job to tell them, seek after the Lord while he may be found. What will their next question be? A lot like the Ethiopian eunuch. When Philip went to him and taught from where he was in the scripture during his own study, he preached to him Jesus. And his next question is how? How? Make it real unto me. Can this be possible for me? You're never going to get to that personal application by telling them you should seek him, but you can't. Sounds like a conundrum. We should probably dig deeper. We should probably try to know more about the Lord. We should probably try to settle these, these, these unsettleable issues. You won't be able to do that by relying on us preachers to figure that out. Every believer has the onus to seek the Lord while he may be found. Here's where we start. In the beginning. This book speaks of him from the beginning to the end. If you wanted to know more about me, you wouldn't go ask my neighbors. They don't know me at all. You'd probably be best to consult a book about me or the, the story of my life or my wife or my children, those who followed after me. What's a disciple? A follower. But you're not going to find out from people who didn't know me. And Jesus says, I come from he you don't know. I come from God the Father. If you knew him, you'd know me. If you knew him, you were seeking me. If you knew him, you've been looking for me, is what he's saying. Many lost sinners who reject Christ today will seek him tomorrow, and he will be gone from them. Consider Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 30. Because I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have said it not, all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. The Jews in particular who are being addressed here at this feast because the Gentiles would not have traveled to this feast. It was a Jewish feast. They were ignorant of spiritual truth and thought he was talking about going to the Jews scattered among the nations, maybe even going to the Gentiles for that little while. That where he would go was certainly not uh, to the kingdom. They didn't know him. They didn't know what he was there to accomplish. 
because they were unwilling to obey the truth. They could not know the truth. Confusion was their reward, their lack of faith. Again, was it because the, the truth wasn't before them? The truth was crying out in front of them. And lastly, we want to look at verses 37 through 53. This is the last day of the feast, and we see a great division. We'll start in verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, again, cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. It's very similar to what he said to the woman at the well in Samaria, which most gathered at this feast would have been appalled to know that he said such a thing to her. Verse 39, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, This is the prophet. Others said, Here's your division, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scriptures said that the Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Verse 45, Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and, have, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never a man spake like this man. This is the officers. Never a man spoke, spoke like this. We've never heard these words. We've never felt this emotion. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. And then our boy Nicodemus there in verse 50. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, back in John 3, you might mark that in the margins if that's the first time you've ever heard it, go back and read it. He approached the Lord Jesus at night and asked him questions of, uh, of, of where he found his strength or his power. He didn't really question his authority, but wanted to know how he did what he did. And he says, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? The question he presents to them is the question he had already himself uh, gone forward to ask. These, this was the questioning he performed already. Verse 52, They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. The last day of the feast, described in our text, that great day of the feast. The seventh day of the feast was a great day of celebration. Leviticus 23, verse 36 says, Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be an holy convocation unto you. And ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It's described as a solemn assembly. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Numbers 29 verse 35 says, On the eighth day ye shall have a solemn assembly. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Each morning of the feast at the, at the time of the sacrifice, the priest would draw water in a golden vessel from the pool of Siloam, and carry it to the temple to be poured out. And this commemorated the wonderful story of, of uh, the, the wonderful supply of water, rather, God gave the Jews in the wilderness, which is very significant given what Jesus says here. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 
He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And again, this feast itself had a practice, a ritual in it where they were giving thanks and in a memorial type style commemorating the wonderful supply of water God gave the Jews in the wilderness. This seventh day was known as the great Hosanna the cl and climaxed the feast itself. It takes little imagination to grasp what, might, what must have happened when Jesus cried out, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, as the priest poured out the water. It's, it's sad and comical at the same time. As these priests are pouring out the water, Jesus is there willing to pour in that an everlasting river would flow from those who would receive unto him. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That cry is still true to this day. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Why should you be ashamed that you thirst? You will never be quenched here. This world does not have the fruit, the vegetable, or the beverage that will satisfy your eternal needs. But Christ Jesus does. If any man here thirst, let him come unto me and drink, Christ says. I believe that as he's crying this out, that there's such great emotion welled up within himself that these are God's people and they will not all come. We try to pacify our own emotions by saying, well, maybe all will come. All will not come. It's not in the Bible anywhere that all will come. It's not in the Bible anywhere that he died for everyone. So I say it with similar emotion. If any man thirst, here's your part. You have to analyze yourself and find, do you thirst? Let him come. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Boy, that's an easy thing, isn't it? On his part, he left the throne room of God. He left the secure position of the right hand of the Father that's still his to this day. But he departed from that spot and came unto this earth performed a ministry, started a church, and stood before a divided crowd. He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. They have questioned his integrity, his origin, his authority, his works, his words. They're rejecting their Messiah. I wonder how many who have been here for our Wednesday study as we've been following the promised seed, pursuing the promised seed, and going through these, this lineage. I wonder how many think about that emotion. When Cain came, Eve said, this, is, this might be the one. This might be the promised seed. We might be delivered from the curse. Cain slayed his brother. Cain wasn't the one. Seth came, maybe there's hope. We'll go further down the line and Dastardly poems are written. Man continues to reveal that his imagination is only evil. And there's no promise seed to be found. There's some righteous preachers. And they continue to say that he will one day come. The Lord 
causes a judgment flood upon the entire earth, and only those in the ark survive. The lineage has dwindled, but we know the promised seed has to come from them. And maybe as Noah's three sons begin to have babies, Noah thinks maybe this will be the one. Maybe this will be the promised seed. Maybe sin will die with me. Maybe sin will die with my sons. Maybe deliverance is upon us. Nimrod happens. Babylon happens. And as we said in our teaching, that was really just the beginning of the Babylonian gears starting to grind away. We've not yet seen the end of that. That's coming. We keep going. And Abraham is called. Abraham seemingly follows. Abraham experiences famines. Abraham runs. Eventually, Abraham is found to be a friend of God, a father of the faithful. And the promised son, Isaac, arrives. Not before Sarah tries to help, but Isaac arrives. And Moriah happens, and it's clear upon that mountain. The good things will come from Isaac. The promised seed will come eventually from Isaac. But Isaac was delivered from another. And we're reminded he's not here yet. Isaac's house is a mess. We're beginning to see Jacob's house is a mess. You'll see that his son's houses, for the most part, are messes. And we still don't see them. Why are we going through months of a Wednesday night study, preacher? Because up to that point, there's a great anticipation the promised seed is still coming and could come. With every first cry from the womb, this could be the one. But Jesus stands on this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles before a uh, degenerate congregation of God's people that aren't looking for him. They're looking for reasons that this ain't him. Everything that they say is this can't be him coming from Galilee. Search your heart. Could any good thing come from here? Search the scriptures. Is there going to be a prophet that comes and arises from Galilee? Verse 52. These are the rulers who are talking here. There's no way it could be him. They're not saying there's no way a man could come from woman alone and be immaculately uh, born. They're saying there's no way it's this guy. It's the carpenter's son. They're looking for a Messiah whose words are agreeable. And if after today you were looking for a pastor whose words are agreeable, maybe you'll keep looking. I don't know. But that's not who stood before them. Who stood before them was the Messiah. The same one who stood before Nicodemus from verse 50 a few chapters back, months before, and told him the truth of his situation. You must be born again. You must be born again in many, many ways, but I think Nicodemus is starting to see here that his understanding had to be reborn. He couldn't go based on what the scribes had interpreted for years up to this point and find the Messiah. He couldn't go based on geography. I mean, Herod was more faithful to looking for Jesus when he was born than they were. And he got a lot of things right, but he didn't get them. He says, if any man thirst, what a sad word for the Messiah, the all-knowing supreme God of the universe to say, if. He could have said, and it would have been factual, Every man thirsteth. But he says, if, if any man thirst. 
This Christ was the rock from which water had flowed. Consider Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. And all the congregation of the children of Israel, and this is part of their memorial here at this feast, they journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Every man thirsteth, but there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. It literally says in the scripture, the people thirsted. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Why does Jesus say if? Because the people said Moses led them out. Because the people chided Moses. They didn't turn to God. And Moses cried unto the Lord saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, and Meribah because of, the children, because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Boy, that last part doesn't sound like old King James English, does it? It kind of sounds like something we would say in 2023. Is the Lord among us or not? Is what they presented unto Moses. I hate to personify the Lord more than than what is made obvious, but he was rejected before this. He was rejected before this last day of the tabernacle or of the feast. He was rejected continually. His glory, his honor, his praise was given to another countless times. Still is. Paul confirms in 1 Corinthians 10.4, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them. And that rock was Christ. He was smitten on the cross that the spirit of life might be given to save and satisfy thirsty sinners. That was the picture, which is the reason Moses is disciplined, disciplined later for smiting the rock twice, because Christ won't be. In the Bible, water for cleansing symbolizes the word of God, and that, that'll be your homework. You can read John 13, verses 1 through 17. You can see that water, uh, is, water for cleansing symbolizes the word of God there, John 13, verses 1 through 17. We also see it mentioned by Jesus in John 15, verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And water for drinking, which is what's represented here, represents the spirit of God, which we see in our text in verse 37 and 38. Instead of heeding his gracious invitation to come, the people argued. There was a division among them. Some believed in him, some rejected him. Matthew 10, verses 31 through 39, we read, Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. 
Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Nicodemus is the only one we give any credit to in John 7 for confessing Jesus at all so far. And he's going to do more later. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me, a continual following, is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Luke 12, verses 51 through 53. Jesus again says, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. And we see in John 7, he delivers. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided. Three against two, two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son divided against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother. And the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. If such division has not occurred in your life, be thankful and prepare your heart. If your calling and election are sure, these words will soon apply even to you. It's not a fun experience, and I have gone through it. Uh, not only with my folks who aren't Baptists, but with family that is Baptist. God's very specific in his word. If any man thirst, come and drink. The soldiers could not arrest him because his words gripped their heart. I pray that his words have gripped ours. The officers answered there in verse 46, Never man spake like this man. You can almost picture them just completely bewildered. What do, what do we do with this? Uh, if anything, Jesus is presenting an invitation. What do we do with this? And maybe they're asking from the standpoint of their, their official role and capacity as officers, what has he done? Which is what Nicodemus points out later. Uh, why, what in our law would say that we would not hear him first? But maybe some of the officers, some of these soldiers are also stating the same question in a different way. What do we do with this? If he is indeed the one, if this is indeed the truth, what have we been doing? What do we do with this? What do you do with this? What if your arms aren't strong enough? What if you've been paddling so hard to keep your head above water this entire time and it's not been enough? What will you do with this? This eternal strength that is offered from one whose burden is so light to us. What will you do with it? Sadly, we all have options still. You can go from this place like you never heard it, go back to your jobs tomorrow or whatever it is we do during the week, and work as hard as we can to forget the burden of the word of the Lord. That's still an option. In this space of repentance, that's still an option. 
you will miss out on a great joy in serving the Lord because that's not serving him. And it's not worshiping him because you can only worship him in spirit and in truth. But what about making tomorrow a different type of Monday? What if tomorrow you start making lists? What if tomorrow you, you recall the blessings of the fasting from last year, the blessings from that track challenge we issued last Sunday? What if you start to put together that every time you've been challenged to put away some of the world and pick up some more of God, you've been blessed? And you say, I want more. I thirst. What if tomorrow you drink? What if tomorrow you come unto him heavy laden and you give yourself over to him and you say, whatever you would have me to do. If I perish, I perish. But here am I, Lord. Send me. Use me. Equip me. That I might see lost souls saved and see your name praised. In this season, this space of repentance, and I'll say it again, it's sad, but you still have that option. If you find yourself to be a servant of the Lord, it's not an option. It's what he's called you on to do, and not doing it requires repentance. If you find that you're not indeed saved, it's better to find that out than to continue to live a lie. What a great Monday. What a great eternity it's going to be for those who know the Lord Jesus to know that one day the burden of this option will be removed. One day there will not be a part of us, as Paul describes, that still longs to do that which we know is wrong, that still longs to rejoice with the world over sin and vanity. It'll be gone once and for all. I think that that, uh, that description that those at death so often give, that, that they describe it to be a, a lightness, that they're lighter. I don't necessarily know that they're talking about a beam of light or an actual weight difference, but I like to think of it as the weight difference part. We're going to be lighter because all of this weight that is oppressing my spine, my hips, my heart, will be removed. I will no longer be trying to run in two directions, and I'll only have one. Because the Jewish leaders rejected Christ, they shut the door of salvation to others who followed their bad example. Matthew 23, 13 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And woe unto you today who depend upon empty or vain religion to be your salvation. Only Christ can save. Only Christ is worthy of praise. I've done nothing worthy of praise. You've done nothing worthy of honor and praise. Only Christ. None will overcome without him. And only those who he has claimed will be kept. Nicodemus enters the picture here at the end as we, we close. I want to draw attention to this. And this time we see him defending Christ's legal privileges. In John 3, he was in the darkness of confusion. Here he's experiencing that dawn of conviction. He's willing to give Christ a fair chance. Because of this, Nicodemus learned the truth. For a willingness to obey the word is the secret of learning God's truth, as we see in verse 17 of the same chapter. We'll see him once again in John 19 in the daylight of confession, openly identifying himself with Christ. Oh, what privileges he must have lost that day. Oh, what worldly uh, access he 
gave up the hour he identified himself with Christ. So did we. When we came out of those waters, we identified ourselves with Christ. We confessed him as our Savior, and we said we depart from these accesses of the world. We depart from these privileges of the world, and we are his. This is just a picture. This isn't actually what, uh, what did the salvation. This is just a picture of what took place. But that was our confession. That was our identification. That was a statement of our profession that we would live differently. How are we doing? The rulers told him, search and look. That's just what he did, praise God. So I'm going to tell you the same thing. I'm going to quote the bad guy in this story. Search and look. Search and look. Did a prophet come from Galilee? Did a Savior stand before them that day? Search and look. See what the scriptures say. Anyone who will read and obey the word of God will move out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We are on a quest this day to find the Messiah. Will you not come along with us? Will you not look and see? Perhaps you tire of the preachers entreating you to consider the scriptures. Read again our text and note the soldiers could not stop our Lord from crying out to the masses. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Have you ever been so dumbfounded by the truth of someone's words, you couldn't even respond? The officers, what, what do we do with this? The Lord's words during the late night questioning of Nicodemus would not release his conscience from the truth. We've reached our conclusion of this outline. Like our final verse, now every man will go unto his own house. You take with you the burden of the word of the Lord. I urge you to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord be with us.